Well, last week we started a new series that will kind of carry us on into the month of June, which seems like a, feels like a long ways away, even though it's going to be here before we know it. And it's called Encountering Jesus. And the idea is that we want to take a look at the interactions and the impact that resulted when people met the resurrected Christ. And we want to see what that might mean for us. And I was listening to a, a friend of mine this week comment about Easter. And, you know, we actually never said, you know, Easter Sunday two weeks ago, no one was more surprised than me, like as I was setting up more chairs in the back of the, the sanctuary. That was amazing. Uh, quite a turnout for our Easter services and very excited uh, for that in the life of our church. Uh, but it was just a, a good day. I, I, like, I like Easter. I know I'm supposed to say that as a pastor, you know, or signed somewhere about how that's going to be our favorite holiday. Uh, whether it is or not, I don't know. But uh, for me, growing up, Easter was always a Sunday that meant uh, lots of extended family. So I, I grew up in a rural area in Iowa, and within you know, an hour's driving distance was most of my family. So uh, those Easter Sundays, Thanksgiving, all of those holidays, we were together with family. And so serving as a pastor in the Pacific Northwest, uh, both Corey and I are a long ways from our families. And so we've really invested a lot um, just in making new, new friends and family in the places that we are. And so we got to uh, have dinner with some close friends of ours. We're very excited to do that. And also some, some people that usually we, uh, those meals, we just throw out invites to whatever. And I love those meals. And so I was listening to a person comment this week about Easter and how it's just a highlight. The season of Lent is a highlight, kind of their favorite time of year at church, uh, very encouraging to their faith. And the second favorite time was Advent and Christmas. And if you think about it in calendar terms, you know, both of those happen within, what, three, four months of each other? So then there's the rest of the year. What gives? It's like eight, nine months before the good times again. And I, I actually didn't say this to the person because, you know, I, I am compassionate. I didn't want to bring them down. But there's an official name for that in the church calendar. It's called Ordinary Time. Oh, well, that's, that's really pleasant. Ordinary Time. You think about it, like, whoever thought of that, it's brilliant, right? It's just like life. Most of life is just ordinary time. You get up. You go to work, you go to school, you come back home. And then there's these peaks and valleys, you know, these moments in between, and then the rest is just ordinary time. And so I pushed back from the table following the Easter meal and, you know, thinking, man, what do I have to look forward to this month? Paying my taxes? Watching it rain for the next week until summer? And for the disciples, the absolute low of Jesus' arrest, his death on the cross, followed by this unexpected joy of the resurrection, probably left them uh, in shock, definitely. Um, but they just needed some time to just let it sink in. What does this mean? And that's the time when the, when the resurrected Jesus began making appearances to them. And last week, Phil pointed out, Jesus could have appeared to anyone during this season. He could have shown up at Pilate's house and uh, really, really messed with him. I think, the, I think the words that Phil used were something like, you know, Jesus could have shown up at Pilate's house and been like, Pilate, you spineless twerp, right? <laughs> it's like, you knew I was innocent, and yet you had me killed anyway. 
Uh, he could have shown up at the Sanhedrin, and he's like, guess what? You guys are waiting for the Messiah? Well, you just murdered him. But Jesus didn't do that. I mean, that's what we would have done. Amen? Now, instead, Jesus went to his friends, to those he loved, he comforted, encouraged, challenged them. What does that tell you about our Lord and our God? You know, a long time ago, actually getting much, much longer, uh, a long time ago, when I was in my last year of college, barely remember that time now, uh, by the time I took my last final exam, I didn't have a job, I didn't have a girlfriend, I did have a diploma, and at least one letter into a graduate program, but man, I was tired. I was ready to push away from the academic table and say, I am full. So after a week or so of laying around at home, eating my mother's cooking, this nagging little question kept growing louder and louder and louder in my brain. Now what? Now what? And I wonder if the disciples didn't feel a similar way. If they thought, you know, we've had enough religious excitement for a while. We feel a, a little bit like, what do we do now? And as we follow in Jesus' footsteps, we can learn so much from them, especially as how it relates to the ups and downs in a life of faith. And we've been kind of hitting on this idea that we're all on our own pilgrimage. And a pilgrimage is defined as a costly, uh, a costly journey in search of Jesus. There are moments that we're going to feel weary, moments then we feel like, oh, I've had enough, moments when we wonder, what do I do now? And while there's no way for us to know what the disciples were actually thinking, there's no way uh, for us to know what anyone who witnessed the events of the resurrection uh, were thinking, we do see that encountering Jesus changes people, changes you changes me. In the last chapter of the book of John, chapter 21, we find that in the, in the immediate aftermath of the resurrection, the disciples left Jerusalem. They headed north to Galilee, kind of their home base around the Sea of Galilee. And what happens in John 21 is sometime after the resurrection of Jesus, yet before he ascends into heaven, it's been a few weeks since he was on the cross, and I just imagine them sitting around with not much to do. And so we'll pick up the story here in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter tells them. And they said, We'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. So here's the resurrected Jesus, standing next to the shore in what must have felt like deja vu to him. And I mean, seriously, what's wrong with people? They didn't recognize Jesus? They just spent the last, what, 
three years of their life day and night with the guy and they didn't recognize that he was there? There is an explanation for this. Whether you like it or not is going to be up to you. Why didn't the disciples, so familiar with Jesus himself, recognize him on the shore? Well, one reason could be because of the resurrection. You know, as Christians, we believe in something called the bodily resurrection. Our belief isn't that our soul is trapped inside of our body and at the moment of death, oh, finally it's freed and it can go up and live this blissful existence with, you know, the Godhead somewhere. That's not what we believe. We believe our soul very purposefully has been planted inside our physical body. In theological terms, we say we are embodied souls. So E-M-bodied soul, embodied souls. And so even in the resurrection, we can learn something from Jesus' body himself. We know for certain that Jesus' body was transformed. He wasn't merely resuscitated, like some people want to say, oh, well, on the cross, he just kind of passed out for a while, and they put him in the tomb, and he woke up later. Well, if he looked just like he did before, why didn't they recognize him? Well, there's been some sort of transformation. Even though he can eat, you can touch him, he can drink, his body is still different. In theological circles, we refer to this as, well, it's the resurrection body. God's going to transform both the earth and our own physical bodies. And so that's one of the hopes that we have when we put our faith in Christ. And so Jesus wasn't immediately recognizable by the disciples because of this change. There's also an element here with the disciples, and I know this is um, probably not going to sound very profound for you, very profound, but you know if you're not looking for someone, it's, you're, you're not going to see them, right? And so here they are fishing on the shore of Galilee, and in their mind, they've seen Jesus twice, but you know they've... He's not present every day. And so then suddenly he shows up kind of a little bit out of context, and they just don't see him. Not recognizing Jesus then doesn't just apply to his closest friends. Lots of us don't recognize Jesus. Jesus died presumably as a, a criminal, and under Roman law, they convicted him as a revolutionary like leading a rebellion, you know, they put the sign on the cross, like this is the king of the Jews. And at his trial, Pilate, we should say spineless Pilate, tried to release him. But instead, the crowd demanded the release of another prisoner named Barabbas. Now, remarkably, there's this textual tradition of the book of Matthew and uh, you're going to get a, a brief primer here on New Testament textual criticism. You, man, you didn't know what the value that you're getting here on Sunday morning. But, you know, the, the, the translations of the Bible that we have, they're based on ancient manuscripts. And there's three basic families geographically that those manuscripts come from. There's the Latin ones in Rome. There's a group called Byzantine uh, manuscripts in Istanbul or Constantinople. And then there's the Alexandrian out of Egypt. Okay, so those are three historic centers for Christianity. The King James Bible largely comes, was based on the Byzantine manuscripts, the ones in the middle. 
And that was because in the 1500s or whenever they translated the King James, that was the one that the apostate Protestants had access to. Rome was like, uh-uh, you're not going to look at our manuscripts. So the, we've realized that the, the Latin ones are the best. And so a lot of the my, modern translations come from the Latin manuscripts, and even though that there are slight differences. And when I say that, I mean like, they copied thousands and thousands and thousands of these over hundreds of years in three different areas, and they have like a 97% rate of agreement. And there's nothing major that's missing. It's, it's things like this. In Matthew, there's a textual group that says Barabbas has a first name. Do you know what it is? Jesus. Think about that. Jesus Barabbas. Jesus of Nazareth. So spineless Pilate, when he stands in front of the crowd, which he knows Jesus is innocent, he's basically asking them, hey, which Jesus do you want? You want the one who's a proven revolutionary? Or do you want the one that's supposed to lead the revolution? You want the Messiah. I mean, he's basically saying, we're killing Jesus tomorrow. All you all, just to get, you, you get to decide which one we're going to kill. That's spineless Pilate. So who is Jesus? Throughout history, people have debated, you know, he's a prophet, he's a teacher, he's a revolutionary, he's crazy, he's a liar. Or maybe he's who he said he was. He's our Lord, the anointed one of God. How do you recognize him? And so we pick up the story again in John chapter 21, verse 5. Jesus calls out to his disciples. He says, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answer. He said, throw out your net on the other side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not, able, or they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. And a few verses later, he says, come and have breakfast with me. So this is a moment when the disciple whom Jesus loved recognized the risen Lord. What helped him see, realize that it was Jesus? Maybe it was the miraculous catch of fish. Maybe it was the sound of his voice, the familiar sight of Jesus on shore. He would have been small, you know, if they're like 100 yards away. Maybe it's deja vu. But from this, we learn something, that recognizing Jesus starts with encountering Jesus. Recognizing who Jesus is starts with just encountering him or being open to encountering him in the first place. And so I want to ask you, when, when have you encountered Jesus? Ever? Or 
Maybe it's been a while. And if you have encountered Jesus, how does it feel when you recognize that the Lord is close to you? I'll I'll admit, you know, we know that Jesus is always near to us. But pastoral confession, you know, sometimes I'm not always real clued in to his presence. Are you? Uh, Another confession. See if I still have a job after this sermon. You know, there's been seasons in life where if I go back and I go, was I encountering Jesus, recognizing him? Yeah, it might have been a while. Might have been a while in that season. You know, all of us, we're not always real clued in. So how can we begin to take notice? How can we begin to become aware of God's presence in our lives? Well, one of the things that I want all of us to learn is how to recognize him. And I I might say, how how do you recognize a prompting of the Holy Spirit? Another way that we could say that is, how do you hear God's voice in your life? You know, when you have a thought or an experience and you wonder, was that God? Or was that God trying to tell me something? You just make a mental note of what happened. Maybe you're not able to stop and you're driving, you know, and you're somewhere and you're just like, I'm just going to file that away and think about that later. And then later, you reflect on what happened and why it happened. And if you get to that point, and you're like, yeah, I think God was trying to tell me something. Well, then it's worth discussing with another Christian. Hey, this happened. I think this is why it happened. What do you think? Uh, just this last week, I was talking with a friend of mine that I, I do a Zoom call with him once a month. Um, I, I do that purposely because he encourages me, and he's a good listener. He asks questions, and he's a retired pastor, and so he has this weird life experience that I have that he's often able to bring light to me through. And I was talking to him like, you know, 10 years ago, well, so it started out like this, like, this week this happened. And it made me think of this thing that happened 10 years ago. And then I was journaling about that, and I realized that there was two other things that happened at the same time this week that also happened at that same time 10 years ago. Do you think those are connected? Yes. <laughs> That's exactly what my friend said. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the Holy Spirit. And I don't know what's going to come about it. We don't, I don't know. We'll just kind of wait and see. But it was like, huh, that's got my attention. Okay, God, what's going to happen with that? That's how this works. That's what following Jesus, encountering Jesus means. You pay attention. And so, I mean, you make a lot of mistakes too, where you go, oh, I think that might be God. And then you realize like, nope, that was just me. <laughs> you know, oh, that was just something I wanted or whatever. That's why you discuss it with other people, other Christians. So encountering and recognizing Christ's presence in your life seems elusive, but don't worry. God really, really, really wants to be found by you. And if you feel guilty, like, oh man, I am a terrible Christian, or I'm not very good at seeking the Lord, don't 
feel bad because we're talking about the disciples here in John chapter 21. The closest people to Jesus ever on earth, and they didn't recognize him, at least right away. You know, the disciple John would later write about why people don't recognize the God of the universe in their midst. He says this. This is John 1, verse 10. He, meaning Christ, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor a a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So when you recognize and receive Jesus, something happens in your soul. You become a child of God. And you can hear your Father's voice much more clearly. You receive all the power and privileges that sons and daughters have in God's family because you no longer belong to this world. You belong to the Father. But it's your choice. You know, the act, the posture of receiving Jesus is, is so important. There's a, there's a phrase, um, I haven't heard this said in a while, but you know, you, you have to accept Jesus into your heart. I think it is based on this passage, I'm not sure. But one of our kids, when they were little, they were always really weirded out by that prospect of accepting Jesus into their heart. And they were like, you know, thinking concretely, like, how is Jesus going to fit in here? You know, that sounds real painful. I don't want any part of that. And so I would tell our child, it's like, well, you're not going to die, okay? I mean, this is a metaphor. It's like a three-year-old, you know, like, don't you understand? No, receiving Jesus is like welcoming him into your life. You're not going to die, sort of. When you receive Jesus, this process of transformation starts. There's a dying to yourself, which is why the journey lasts a while. It doesn't always come naturally to us. But the more and more we learn to surrender to God's will, man, the more freedom, the more joy, the more locked in that we are to our Father's voice. It changes everything. So it's one thing to recognize Jesus as God. It's another thing to follow him. Will you follow Jesus? That's the question faced by all of us and also faced by his first disciples. So his disciples had fished all night. No idea. There's only seven disciples listed, so I don't know if like some of them stayed back at the house or some of them are in Jerusalem or there, but there's only seven of them here. No idea why. And clearly they wanted to get out of Dodge, so to speak, Uh, get out of Jerusalem, head for the safety and familiarity of their home. And you have to feel for the disciples. I mean, their world has turned upside down. I mean, whatever their expectations had been about Jesus being the Messiah, whatever their expectations had been about their role in his coming kingdom, I mean, those had all dramatically changed. And it really just didn't turn out like they thought it would. And even though it didn't turn out like they thought it would, that's not necessarily bad. It's just, it's just different, isn't it? Has that ever happened to you? Where things kind of turned out just 
not like you expected. You know, earlier I mentioned I'd come home after college graduation to rest, to reflect on what was going to happen next. And what I didn't tell you is that I'd had a summer job lined up at a Bible camp in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which if you have never been to the UP, you got to go sometime. Um, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. One of my favorite summers ever. So I was headed to the UP, but no firm plans after that. Also, I had broken up with my college girlfriend of several years, like two months before graduation. And I think I had always imagined, even though I wouldn't have said this out loud, I'd always imagined that I would meet my future spouse in college. And then it didn't turn out that way. Um, I was literally, the question, you know, the, now what happens next? That was kind of my existential question. And one that many of us face multiple times over the course of our life. What do you do when things don't turn out like you expected? Maybe there's a sudden illness. Maybe you lose a loved one. Maybe it's just a gigantic life interruption that you weren't expecting. Maybe it was a promising relationship that ended. Could be jobs, your, a career that didn't work out. Maybe you followed God's direction only to find a dead end. What if, I mean, just spitballing here, what if a global pandemic started? Things don't turn out like we expect. Life ex takes unexpected turns. Occasionally, we're extremely aware of these expectations, but most times, we're not. I, I like to think, you know, you have this mental blueprint, and maybe the blueprint we kind of get from our families of origin or we see it on TV or social media, I don't know. But there's this, like, mental blueprint of how life is supposed to progress. At least, for me, it was like that. You know, you go to college... You get married, you start your career, you have kids. There's a very predictable order in how this goes. And then suddenly, it's not going to script. What do you do? What's, what's your blueprint, the script of how life is going to go for you? And how is it going right now? You know, I meet lots of people in my line of work and man I just I'm when I, whenever I meet one of these folks I'm just like you know I I feel bad for them but at the same time I'm kind of sickly excited because now you're thinking whoa what is he going to say uh, you know you meet people who have just been locked in on whatever their life is going to be for like 20 years and they just they're winning right everything just seems to go awesomely for them. And those are the people I worry about most. Because there is going to be a point where an unexpected thing in life hits. And if you've never had the experience of having the you know, rug pulled out from underneath you, it's traumatic. You know, we call this a midlife crisis, right? When reality and my expectations don't meet. It doesn't have to happen in midlife. Anytime that we experience this, I thought this was the blueprint, this is how it was going to go, and then it changed. You have to deal with that. And the temptation is just to go, see a God, I'm out. 
I did everything you wanted me to. I thought it was going to turn out like this. You didn't come through. Please, don't do that. When you have one of those moments and you start to freak out, treat it as an invitation. Where is the Lord present in my life right now? When's the last time I actually encountered him? How, how, how can I reconnect with him in my life? And uh, if there's a spot that you're encountering Jesus and you can name that, recognize it. The disciples, they go back to Galilee. It was a familiar place. It reminded them of Jesus. They had spent so much time here with him on that shore. And the way this episode reads is like they're just all sitting around and Peter finally asks, hey, want to go fishing? Sure, let's do something. And so they're sitting out in this boat all night long talking, reminiscing, processing, wondering what on earth happened. Thomas and Nathaniel, you know, they're in the boat, but you know, they're not fishermen. It only says that Peter, James, John, Andrew are fishermen. So I mean, they're just along for the ride, I guess. But this boat, you know, they've found, archaeologists have found, uh, I have a picture of this, they've actually found a boat from this time period uh, that was buried in, this, in the mud of one of the shallow areas of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and it was years and years ago, it was during a major drought. So the water levels had dropped significantly and they were able to, somebody just stumbled upon it. And so this was essentially the size of the boat. That's 27 feet long. Uh, I think it's about eight feet wide, and once it had sides, they said it was like four feet deep. So it would hold, I don't know, ten people. And what they would do is they would take likely two boats at the same time. So they would have this specialized net, and they would go out into the shallow water, and one boat on one side would take it up this way, and the other boat would come. I mean, we still fish this way now. Like, just watch some Alaska videos, right? And they surround, it's called a trammel net. They surround a school of fish. And because we're talking about, you know, rock sinkers and nets made out of, you know, natural materials, there's no way for them to just have a crane and pick it up on the boat. So they would have another net, a casting net, that would throw into the middle of this caged-in area and try and net the fish that way. And they'd pull them on the boat. So uh, often there's a diver people jumping in the water to check the net and make sure that there isn't a spot where all the fish are getting out. That was probably Peter. He's jumping in and out, and they're going all night long. Like, it's exhausting, right? All night long, and they've got nothing. And so then this guy shows up. I don't know. He's standing, he's shouting from the shore, and he says, throw your net on the other side of the boat. Well, this is oddly reminiscent of another night when the same people fished in the same place and achieved the same outcome. Nothing. And then this guy showed up on the shore and said, hey, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And so, I don't know, maybe he saw a school of fish. Somebody throws a net over there. You realize it's just a net in the ocean. Okay, there's nothing. As it's floating down, the fish are swimming away, right? They catch 153 fish. And that's when John goes, it's the Lord, <laughs> right? <laughs> this can't happen. 
This is impossible. But it's also deja vu. This is the exact same way it happened when Jesus asked them to become fishers of people, right? In Luke chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, the first time Peter says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And instead Jesus says, don't be afraid, from now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. And so this whole scene is Jesus asking them, hey, what are you going to do here? Are you going to fish for fish? Or are you going to fish for people? It's the same place, same people, maybe the same boat, same outcome, same question. Will you follow me? Will you follow me? The only difference here is the circumstances. When Jesus is arrested, crucified, dies, where are the disciples? Nowhere. Peter even denies that he knows Jesus three times. But instead of recriminations, Jesus offers restoration. Three times he asks Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Three times, probably to match the three times that he denied him. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Jesus is restoring Peter and Peter's calling. You know, there's so much here in John chapter 1. I could probably preach a whole nother sermon. Uh, I won't. But after a global pandemic which I know a lot of us have shut that door and moved on. You know, is there someone, and maybe it's not the pandemic, maybe it's just life. Is there someone who's like Peter in your life who's really let you down? Or another question. Have you ever been like Peter to someone else? If you live long enough, you're probably going to experience both. And when we're talking about relationships, which God cares about, relationships that have suffered abandonment, betrayal, absence when I needed you most, you know, how would you ever recover from this? It's impossible, right? It's not impossible. When you have the power of Christ in your midst that you can tap into, you can do this. The relationship might not look the same as it did before, but you can learn how to forgive. And with a miracle, maybe God will even restore that relationship. Not going to happen overnight, at least probably won't. It might take time and some intentionality, but we hold on to that hope as followers of Christ. And where I'll wrap this up, I'll say there's seasons in our life where, for no apparent reason to us, we just pull away from the Lord. I don't know. Maybe we're bored. Maybe it's driven by something that happened. You know, there's guilt or shame because we made a mistake. Maybe we sinned very boldly. Uh, maybe we've heard the voice of God and we just chose to ignore it or turn the other way. 
Maybe we just drifted. So if that's you, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? You know, you can even be in a place of being ashamed to be named as a Christian, ashamed of God, scared to be associated with him, uncertain of what's going to happen next. And if that's you, then welcome to Peter's boat. What are you going to do? You're going to do what Judas did? Or are you going to be like the disciples and be like Peter? Return to the familiar patterns and places where you encountered Jesus before. Open yourself up to recognizing him, naming him, and not just that, but actually following him. Because Christ will forgive. Christ will bless you. Jesus will send you out again. Please join me in prayer. Lord, there are so many moments of ordinary time in our life, and, you know, sometimes it just gets numb, and we forget you. And then there are the peaks and the valleys, and sometimes we don't handle those very well either. I just want to pray for us, Lord, that no matter what, we wouldn't let the voice of the evil one condemn, make us feel guilty, keep us away. But instead, we would start to listen to the voice of you, our Heavenly Father. And that we would want to lean into that voice to hear it more and more. That you would draw us in. Because you died once and for all of our sins, Lord. And because of your resurrection, we can experience and taste a new life that's only found in you. Help us to do that. Help us to taste that. Help us to want that, Lord. And for those of us who have been like Peter and have really let someone down, God, I pray that that would not be crushing. I pray that you would help us to know what to do next, what to own, what to say sorry for, how to wait. And if we've been betrayed or abandoned or let down, just like you, that hurts. Help us to tap into your healing. We pray that in time, we would be able to forgive. Won't you do that in us, Lord? We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.